All right, Romans chapter 13 again this morning. We've started looking into this chapter last week, talking about how we as believers ought to conduct ourselves when it comes to the authority of government over us. This is a section that always seems to bring up strong feelings with people. Seems like this isn't one of those areas that nobody has an opinion on. Especially when we contemplate things like the political landscape that surrounds us today and how um, and see just how great a divide there is when it comes to people today with political differences. Unfortunately, those differences become magnified when we start to talk about government. That's where the focus comes in. Because inevitably, that's where the politics leads us, right? One party has power, one party does not, and people have very strong opinions on that. Now, we're not going to get into political discussions this morning. Uh, that's not our place here today. And quite frankly, the political aspect of government isn't really what's at issue. What's really at issue is how are we, as believers, supposed to respond to the government that is over us, the authority that the government has over us, regardless of whether or not we agree with them. And if you remember last week when we started into this section, I mentioned that there were four things that we need to keep in mind as we contemplate this part of uh, Scripture. Four things that I think we should remind ourselves of as we work our way through this. Number one, I won't go into as much detail as I did last week. We spent a lot of time on this last week, but I'll just kind of briefly mention them again. The first one being that we are dealing here not with Paul's opinion on this matter. This is the command of God. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, he says here. This is God's command to us, right? It has nothing to do with what Paul's idea of a perfect government is. It has nothing to do with with what he sees as himself living under the perfect government, but it's what the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to write to the believers in Rome. Number two, the second thing that we need to keep in mind is that exceptions should not be the rule. When we see this command, we should not immediately be looking for how we get out of it, looking for the exceptions. We see this in other areas of Scripture. There are many commands that we have in Scripture. God says that we're to serve Him. We don't look immediately for how do we get out of that, right? He said that we are present our, our bodies as a sacrifice to Him. We don't immediately look at, well, okay, but what are the exceptions to that? We're to pray. We're to utilize our spiritual gifts to serve this body. We are to meet together as a church on a regular basis. All of those things are, are commands that God gives to us and how sad it would be if our immediate thought whenever God gave us a command was, well, what are the exceptions to that? How can I make it so that I don't have to do those things? Well, when it comes to this command, that shouldn't be our first thought either. And I fear that sometimes it is. What are the exceptions to having to submit to government? The third thing that we need to keep in mind is that the type of government doesn't matter. We spent some time talking about this one, and we noted that the entire world lies in the power of Satan, lies in the power of the evil one. The government of any nation is also going to lie under that authority. And by and large, every form of government is going to be anti-Christian, some more than others, but we should expect them all to be anti-Christian. But that doesn't matter. In Paul's day, you had the Caesars, right? The, the, the leadership of Rome. Caesar was in charge of Rome. That's where this church existed that he's writing this letter to. They were not pro-Christian. In fact, they were anti-Christian, right? The Caesars were wicked, disgusting men. They were immoral. They murdered. They lied. They deceived their way through, through life. And they were by no means role models for Christian living. In fact, Nero, who was in charge of Rome at the time that Paul wrote this, was the one who was in power, his history tells us, when Peter and Paul were executed by the Roman authorities. Nero was also the one who was responsible for widespread persecution of Christianities. And while we don't know if that persecution had happened, had started yet when Paul was writing this, that doesn't really play any part in what the commands are here. We are to be subject 
ourselves to the government, regardless of what type of government it is or who has come to power. And the fourth thing that we need to keep in mind, that we need to remind ourselves of as we look through this, is that we are passing through. We get very caught up in the inner workings of our government, right? That's our perspective. We look at the United States and we look at the government that's in, in charge here. And one of the main reasons we do this is because we feel that what guides and steers how our country goes, right? Our, our home, this place that we live in, right? That's what, that's what we see the government is doing. But we need to keep in mind, this is not really our home. Not really anymore. Paul told the Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven. We do not belong here anymore. Whatever happens here today in this country is at best temporary for us. The United States will not run the kingdom of God. As much as people would like to think that that's what's going on, the United States is not going to run the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of God that we have our hope, our focus fixed upon, that we are anxiously awaiting. So we understand that today, in this situation that we're in, whatever goes on, it's like we are visitors to another country. We go to that country, we respect the authority that's there, but we understand that's not where we truly belong. We belong someplace else. We are travelers awaiting our homecoming. And so that's the perspective that we ought to have when it comes to the government and the rule that we are under here and now. This is not permanent. This is not everything that there is. But right now, we are here. And as those who are called to live and to function here on this earth at this time, we do have responsibilities. We do have obligations. We have obligations to God. We have obligations to each other, to this church. And we have obligations to those in the world around us as well. And that's what Paul has been getting at really since the beginning of chapter 12 the way in which we are to live here and now. And what it boils down to is that we are called to sacrifice ourselves to God in everything that we do. We've read Romans 12, one through two, or, uh, the first two verses many times already, but, the, but they are the verses that cover these final chapters of the letter that we're into, right? So we'll read them yet again. Romans 12, 1, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. In all that we've looked at over the last several weeks, this is what's guiding us. This is what covers everything that we've seen. Present yourselves, all that you are, as a living, holy, and acceptable sacrifice to God. Not being shaped or molded to this world, but transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit in understanding the Word of God and becoming more and more Christ-like every single day. That is our worship of God. It is reasonable, it is thought out, it is worship in everything that we do every day of our lives. We see our lives now as worship of God in everything. And this pertains to our relationships in the church, and it pertains to our relationships outside of the church as well. And now we are seeing that it pertains to the way that we submit ourselves to the authorities that God has established over us as well. Now, last week, we just started in on this chapter. We're taking it kind of slow. But we just saw the first two verses. So let's read verses 1 and 2 again of chapter 13. He says, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Now, as we said before, we are to submit to the governing authorities. Place ourselves under them, right? And this is a, 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 a word, subject yourselves, a word is, means rank, right? Subject, you're placing yourself under someone as if they have a higher rank than you, right? And he clearly says why. He says, for there is no authority except 
from God, and God has established those authorities. God is the one who has established everyone who's in power. He put them there, right? We go back to the, the, you look at the Babylonians, the Syrians, the Egyptians, the Romans. Yes, and even the Americans, right? The government that we have. We looked at examples of this from Daniel, from Jeremiah, even, even went back to Romans chapter 9, where God says that he raised up Pharaoh for his own purposes. God is the one who establishes authority. He establishes governments. He establishes leaders. Therefore, what's our response to what God has established? We submit to their leadership. It's an interesting thing to note. I mentioned Pharaoh, right? He talked about him back in chapter 9. How did God free his people from Egypt, right? Pharaoh was the one that, that was in charge when God freed the, the, the Jews from Egypt, right? How did he do that? Did he just tell Moses, okay, Moses, tell everybody to pack up, we're moving out? No. He had Moses go and appeal to Pharaoh. Did God have to do that? Right? He sent terrible plagues upon Egypt so that Pharaoh would release the Israelites, right? He, he demonstrated his power that he could have killed off all of the Egyptians. You read in, in passages like Judges chapter 6 with men like Gideon, where God took 22,000 Israelites, right? And, and they were going up against the Midianites who had a, a much larger number. And God said, that's too many. He whittled that number from 22,000 down to 300. And with that 300, he defeated the Midianites. Do you think God could have done the same thing here in Egypt? Of course he could have, but he didn't choose to do it that way. With Israel, he, he instead he worked through a different way, or with Egypt, and he worked it through a different way, through the leader that he had raised up in Egypt in order to demonstrate his own power in dealing with the Egyptians. It wasn't through a revolution. It wasn't through an uprising. Pharaoh had God-given authority, and God worked through that authority that he had given to him. The point being that we don't know how or why God raises up certain men to be in power. There are some people we look at and we think, I don't get that at all. Why is he there? Why is she there? Why, why are they in charge? But he does it to serve his purposes in some way. So what that means is that when we disobey that authority, we are in disobedience to God. That's the point of the first part of verse 2. Whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. Our refusal to obey government is in opposition to God, to the authority that he has established. Again, it's not because of their character. It's not because they're really great guys and everyone that's in power is a, is a perfect person. But it's because God has the one that has put them in that position. Now, the last part of verse 2 we looked at, but we'll expound on this today. Where he said, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. And this is, this means opposing government has consequences. And that condemnation that he's referring to here isn't the condemnation of God. It's, it's the punishment that government has the authority to mete out. And this is one of the things that government is good for. One of the things that they do. Meeting out punishment for those that break the laws, those that do evil. And this is true for believer and unbeliever alike. The difference being that believers ought to know better. Because we know that obeying the laws is obeying God. That's what we're seeing here. But whether or not laws are obeyed, the governing authorities have the responsibility, they have the authority to enforce those laws. And that's where he goes starting in verse 3. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. So the general rule, and again, we're talking about general rules here. We're not saying in any of this that there are never exceptions. We looked at a few times where there were exceptions last week, right? When there's clear-cut times where government is ordering us to do something that is, is opposed to the Word of God, right? There are clear-cut times of doing that, right? So we're not saying that there aren't any exceptions. But the general rule is what we find here. Governmental authority is God's plan for keeping order in society. 
in keeping the world from slipping into total anarchy. This is what God has established. Sometimes people think, you know, things are so bad. Why doesn't God take charge of things? Well, he does through the governmental authority that he establishes. You look at governments, you look at all governments, right? Well, again, we're, we tend to think of our government here, right? Because that's what's directly related to us. But there's governments all over the world, right? I mean, I don't know how many countries there are, hundreds of countries, right? And they all have different kinds of governments. They don't all follow our rules. So you look at these governments and they all have laws that are designed to maintain order in some way. Now, we may not agree with them all. Some countries have laws that are much different from our own, right? And we might not even agree with their laws. We might look at some other countries and their laws and think, well, that's unjust, that's unfair when we compare them to our own. But by and large, they are all still laws that are designed to maintain order in some way. I'm not personally well-versed in what the old, the old Roman laws were, right? I mean, they had laws. I don't know exactly what those were. I'm sure they had some similarities to our own. I'm sure they had differences to our own. But overall, their laws maintained order, as do ours. And that's really what we're talking about here. So what does this verse tell us about the order that God has provided? Well, governments are instrumental in establishing and maintaining that order because they have the authority to establish laws and the authority to mete out punishments that come as a consequence for violating those laws. Again, generally speaking, we are not afraid of punishment from authorities when we are obeying those laws. Having good behavior, doing what we should, that was true in Paul's day and that's true in our day as well. A fear of those laws comes when we're doing evil, right? And, and he's talking about disobeying the laws. For the most part, that's what laws are for, right? I mean, I understand laws come in and we have lots of laws and some are, you know, we think of as ticky-tack laws, right? But, but for the most part, the general rule of what laws are for is to confront evil, right? Just about every society has, you don't murder, you don't steal, you don't, you know, the, the ones that we consider as the big ones. If I'm standing at the counter at Casey's, right? I go to Casey's and I'm standing there at the counter and a uniformed policeman walks in the door. What's my reaction? Well, that might depend on what I'm there doing, right? Why am I at the counter at Casey's? If I'm standing there with my big gulp, or is that a 7-Eleven thing, whatever. If I'm standing there with my big drink and I'm going to pay for my gas that I just pumped, then I won't think much about it at all. I might smile and say hello, right? Because I don't have anything to fear. I'm just at Casey's and he comes into Casey's. But if I was standing at the counter because I was just about to pull out my ski mask and rob the guy behind the counter, well, then my reaction's probably a little different, right? Now there's fear because I know that, what, that that's something that I would be doing that would be wrong. And here comes someone with authority to stop that. If I don't want to fear authority, then I obey the laws. And there's nothing to be afraid of. If I do what is right, then I receive praise from those authorities, right? He talks about getting praise from the same. If I'm doing my civil service and I'm behaving as I should. Now that doesn't mean that we should all expect awards for not robbing gas stations. I get, get a letter in the mail that says, oh, congratulations, this is, your, this is your gold star for going 100 days without robbing a gas station. No, we don't, we don't get, get praise like that. But the general idea is that we are being good citizens when we obey the laws that those in authorities have established. And that's what's in view here. It's this fear of punishment that maintains order in society. That's one of the main roles of government. And it's the general rule. Again, there are exceptions, but that's how it generally functions. Now, I can say, as I'm sure you would say, that generally speaking, competing with the siren, that generally speaking, I'm glad that the authorities are around. I'm glad that the police are around, right? We're all glad that they're there. We're all glad that they're maintaining order. Now, in recent years, we've heard of things like calling to defund police, getting rid of police in certain situations, right? And overall, I think we would agree that that's generally a bad idea to get rid of the police. We need the police. We need that law and order. It needs to be there. And we've seen what happens in places where the police have, haven't been allowed to do their jobs. 
They need to function. They need to maintain laws, and we're glad that they're around. But I would hazard a guess that there are times when we're not so glad that they're around, right? I mean, if I'm walking my kids to school, which I don't have kids that age anymore, but bear with me. If I'm walking kids, or maybe I'm walking grandkids to school, and I'm walking down the sidewalk over here, and I see a police car parked over there that's enforcing the 25 mile an hour speed limit here, right? In that situation, I'm like, I'm glad that he's there. I'm glad that he's there not allowing people to just speed through here while there's kids in this, right? I'm very appreciative that they're there. I'm glad they're there enforcing that law. Just like when I'm driving down I-80 and I come over a hill and then there's a, there's a policeman right there in the median. Sometimes I'm glad he's there. Sometimes I'm not glad he's there, right? Sometimes we see that police car in the median and we're not so glad he's there because now I have to touch my brake or now I have to make sure, look down at my speedometer and see, am, am I in trouble here, right? Are those lights, car comes up behind me, rushes up behind me in the mirror and I'm like, are those lights? Oh no, it's a ski rack, good, right? What is that? What is that type of reaction? Again, that's the fear from doing something wrong, right? Fear of disobeying laws, which of course none of us here would ever have an issue with, right? That's just a hypothetical example. I'm sure nobody ever has an issue with any of that. But overall, we're glad that they're there. So look with me at verse 4. He says, For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Government is a minister of God for good. Now, how can that be? I mean, we look at government today, and we don't, our first thought, I would generally guess, is that's good. That's a minister of God for good. They're never on the Christian side. They've made abortion legal. They've made homosexual marriage legal. They're shoving, you know, trans ideology, 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 ideology down our throats, right? So on and so forth. We can point to many different things. I bet if we went through here and asked somebody, what are things that you've recognized the government, you know, recognize about the government, we would all, we all point out things that we do not agree with. There are a lot of things that come out of government that aren't good, that aren't moral, that aren't godly, that isn't right. But they still do good things. We are still free to worship here together, right? Here we are. We don't have anybody coming in here telling us to disperse. We don't have the fear of anybody walking through those doors this morning to disperse. We still live in a relatively safe and peaceful place in our own homes today. They still maintain order in our lives. We still have it good in this country. God has blessed us in so many ways here. You still compare what we have here with, with other countries across the world, and we do still enjoy many freedoms and blessings that others in the world and throughout history have never known. Yes, some of those freedoms and blessings seem threatened today, right? That's one of the things that we get concerned about. Yes, they may be on the decline. Yes, the attacks on the church may be ticking upward. Yes, there may be a day where we do fear about meeting here and about somebody coming in the door. But none of that changes what God is telling us here. Government in general is a minister of God to you for good. Without an established government keeping order around us, there would be total chaos. We looked early on in this letter about the depravity of man, right? The first chapter, we talked about man's depravity, how bad the world can be, how bad the world is, how bad man is in the world. Mankind has been given over to the lusts of his heart. He refuses to acknowledge God. He's filled with unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil. And we could go on and on and on. And Paul lists out 20-some things in chapter 1. That's what is in the world. And generally speaking, it's not good. It's generally evil. What keeps it together? What keeps mankind from killing himself off? Based on what you read in Romans chapter 1, why are we still here? It's because of the sovereign control of God, including the use of his servant, human government. 
But what if you don't obey? What if you decide to do evil instead? Well, we talked about this in the last verse, right? We have that fear of disobeying. But here we see what we fear or why we fear. Government has the authority to do what is necessary to punish evil. It has the authority to avenge itself on those who break laws. Mete out punishment against those who do something that's wrong. Now at the end of chapter 12, we saw that individual vengeance is forbidden, right? We talked about that. In verse 17 of chapter 12, he started there and he said, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So right here, people take these verses, and some take this and say, well, see, vengeance is for God alone, right? So it's wrong for the government to punish people. It's wrong for them to put people to death. It's, it's because that's vengeance, and vengeance is for God alone. He says it right here, and people take that, and they, they say that's why capital punishment is wrong. Well, what is Paul really saying here? He's saying that the government is God's servant in exacting that vengeance. It is for God, and, God, and government is God's minister in that. Government, as the representative of God, is the hand by which God uses to carry that out. If someone comes in and kills out my entire family, I do not have the right to hunt them down and shoot them myself, right? It's not like in the Old West where I round up a posse and we all go down and, and hunt someone down. As much as I might want to do that, I do not have the luxury or the right to do that. But the government can mete out that punishment. The government has the authority to take that action. And that's what they're for. That is one of their purposes. And that's what Paul is talking about when he says, it does not fear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Government bears the sword. Government is an avenger. The sword being used for one thing, right? He references the sword. This, he wasn't talking about it as a paperweight. He wasn't talking about it as, you know, slapping somebody on the wrist. The sword would kill someone, right? We're talking about capital punishment. It has the authority to, punishment, to punish up to taking a life for crimes committed. And again, the different countries, right? We look at different differences around us. Different countries have different laws and different ways to punish. Some we agree with. Some countries, I'm sure, have laws that we think are way too soft, way too lenient on things. Some countries we look at and we think that's way too harsh, right? They, that's, that's, you know, human rights violations kind of things. But overall, each government has the authority to deal with punishments as they see fit. The Babylonians, Egyptians, Greeks, Romans, all had different laws, all had different punishments. And yet they were all authorities that God had established and had used as his servants in different times and in different ways. Those that do evil, that break the laws, should be afraid. They should have that fear. The authorities have the power given to them by God as a minister of God to mete out that vengeance. Verse 5, Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. Here Paul summarizes what he's just said, that we need to be in subjection because of wrath. He mentions that. Because we can expect punishment if we disobey the laws of the authority that we're under. Keep in mind, the overall idea of this entire section is what we saw back in verse 1. Every person is to be subject to the governing authorities. That's our entire premise here, this command to believers. If we disobey, we can expect the wrath to come upon us, the wrath of that government to come upon us, right, for disobeying the laws. But he also throws in an additional reason, right? That's not the only thing he mentions here. A reason that should have a particular meaning for us as believers. That is that we also do it for conscience sake. For the unbeliever, the wrath is what would keep them in line, right? It's really probably the wrath that, o that only keeps them in line. If they had no authorities to fear, then the evil often comes to the forefront, right? 
if they don't think there's going to be any enforcement or anyone to enforce something, then the evil comes to the forefront. I mean, you see this at different times. What happens in, I don't remember, years and years ago, almost 20 years ago now, there was the uh, Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans. And after that happened, you had people, I'm going to say roaming the streets, but they were like wading through water, right? But they were looting everywhere. Why? Because there was no fear of anybody to stop them in those instances. Right? We had we recently history, we've had protests in many cities across the United States where where the police were just ordered to just not do anything, not stop. And inevitably these protests turn into what? Riots and looting. Right? They devolve into riots and looting. And you ask yourself, well, why weren't those things happening before? Why weren't these riots going on before? Why was, wasn't there looting going on before? Why were people in New Orleans not going into stores and just stealing things off the shelves before? It's because they knew before that there was that fear of wrath, that, that if they got caught, then they would be punished, right? But you take that fear away and you have chaos. What about for the believer? Is that the only thing that stops us as a believer, whether we know that the police is around or not? If for some reason, and I don't think this would ever happen, I hope this would never happen, but if for some reason you hear on the radio, oh, the, the police department to, today is taking a day off, there aren't going to be any police on the roads anywhere. Would that affect the way that I drive to work? I don't drive to work. I work from home. But you understand the idea. Would that affect the way that I drive to Lincoln? Would it affect the way that I... Um, would it affect the way that if I stop at the gas station, I decide to pay for gas or not? Would it affect if I rob a bank or not? For some people, it definitely would affect those things, right? But as a believer, that wouldn't affect me at all. It shouldn't affect me at all. As a believer, I have my conscience before God as well. I don't obey the laws simply because I fear getting caught. I obey the laws because they are the ordinances put in place by those whom God has established over me, and I know that I am to submit to them. If I'm driving down the road and I see a speed limit sign, then I know that that's the speed limit. Whether or not I can see a police car on the side of the road in front of me or not, I know that that's what the speed limit is. That's what I should be driving. I know right from wrong. Not everyone now, or now, everyone does have a conscience, and everyone knows that it's right to obey the laws. Everyone knows that it's right to obey the government. But for the believer, who also has the indwelling Holy Spirit residing within us, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt when something is right or wrong. The conscience, we need to keep in mind, is not a perfect litmus test in and of itself. Our conscience can be worn down. Our conscience can be hardened. The more and more we go against our conscience, the less and less guilt we feel from violating our conscience. That's a dangerous situation for especially as believers to be in. When we sin, there's guilt. We get guilt from sin because we know that it's wrong. And the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin. But our conscience can be worn down to the point where we don't feel as much guilt as we once did. And that's a sure sign that the believer has been involved in that sin probably one too many times or far too long. But the point here in verse 5 is that as believers who are concerned with being obedient to God's will, as we should be, it would be, it should be a violation of our conscience to disobey the authorities that God has established over us. We know that we are to obey them. Now it's our responsibility to do so. So there is dual reason for obeying laws and authority. There is the fear of consequences, right, that everyone has, but there's also a guilt of what we know to be the right thing to do. And that's what should be our concern as believers. Now we get to the fun verse, as if that wasn't fun enough. Now we get to the fun verse in verse 6. Speaking of knowing what's right to do, we get to verse 6. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. This is another area where we need to do what's right. And I mentioned last week, the, 
the joy that I had of getting a letter in the mail just before, just in the middle of the week, um, about property tax. It wasn't a property tax valuation, but it was the notice of what the property tax is going to be, and there were going to be these meetings that you could talk to people about your property taxes. And apparently people went, I didn't go to the meeting, but apparently others went to the meeting and it got to be very heated, right? This is a good reminder of what we're talking about here, because this is the type of thing that generally gets people a little riled up. And when I say that, I'm not necessarily talking about myself, but I'm not excluding myself from that either. For because of this, he says, it takes us back to the same reasons from verse 5. This is really an extension. He's just continuing on, but it's an extension of what he's just been talking about. There is a fear of the consequences, as well as our conscience, the responsibility that we know we have before God that we pay taxes. How many times have we thought, at least a little bit, maybe a lot, you know, if I didn't have to pay my taxes, I wouldn't. If, if, if I didn't think that one of those 86,000 new IRS agents that are looking for things to do might come knocking on my door, I might just forget to send in my return this year. That might be one of those dreams that we have at night that we're disappointed when we wake up, right? But again, it's not just about the consequences. It's knowing what is right to do. It's interesting here. We tend to look at taxes and we hear the word overreach a lot, right? We tend to think of taxes as, a, as an overreach. That taxes are one of the things that government has implemented that is outside of the scope of what they should be doing. But Paul is telling us here it's, it's not. It's all a part of it. It's part of what he mentioned in verse 4, where government is part of being a minister of God to you for good. There are things that come out of those taxes that are good. We all got here on dirt roads? No. We all drove here on paved roads. Some of us may have had dirt roads that we traveled on, but for the most part, getting into this facility, we were on paved roads, right? Those weren't paid for by people out of the goodness of their hearts came from tax money. This one takes us back to the Romans again because they were notorious for having great roads, bridges, waterways, right? Those things were paid for by taxes then as well. We're meeting in this building, this building that we're, we have around us, right? Guess what paid for this building? Taxes. Keeps up the maintenance of this building, taxes. Now just the idea of paying any taxes, I don't think that's really what rankles us, right? When we think about it, we get there at times, but in reality, we all understand that we're going to pay taxes. It's when we see them go up, and we don't know why. They go up again and again and again. It's when we see well, that they use them for things that we consider to be waste. It's when we see potential fraud or programs that we don't agree with, or maybe even programs that aren't moral. That's when we start to get rankled at this stuff. Again, this goes back I'm going to take this back to the blessings that I talked about before that we have here in our country. Blessings that those in, in other countries don't even have. Now, in what way? In what way do we mention all those programs and we mention blessings in the same breath? It's because in our country, we do have the freedom through the government. This is what part of the laws and the rules of our land. We have the ability to vote and we have a say in some of these things. It might, it might not be a loud voice. It might not always be successful. But we do have it, and we can exercise that voice. Voting or trying to make a change in government isn't outside of what we're talking about here, right? Because those are the laws, those are the rules that we have under the authority that we've been placed, right? We can make these changes if, if we so desire. Because in our country, that's part of the freedom that we have, freedom that most other countries don't have. So that is a blessing that we still have. But we still need to understand, and this goes back to the points that I brought up at the very beginning, we still need to understand that the vote may not go our way. And I would say it probably won't go our way. This world, once again, lies in the power of the evil one. There are a whole lot of people who love the darkness who love the things of this world that are also out there voting. They are also expressing their voice in our system of government, and they will vote against what we think to be right. 
That's the condition of the world. We understand that. As Christians, we understand that. Scripture tells us that the world is like that. We should not expect that we're going to vote to make the world a better place around us. Scripture is clear that it's going to get worse, and it's going to get worse, and it's going to get worse until the Lord comes. But that doesn't change what our responsibility is to the authorities that do get put into place. We still submit to them. Now, I'm speaking more generally now. But getting back to what Paul is talking about specifically with taxes here, this means that when a decision is made and taxes are required, we pay those taxes. Not because we like them, not because we love the idea, but because we know that that's the right thing to do. So again, coming back to our text, you see again the general concept that taxes are a necessary thing, but and we are expected to pay them, and that is a part of the responsibility that we have to the governing authorities. I'm pretty sure that none of us would think of going into Casey's, like I mentioned before. Apparently I thought of it, because I used this as an example, but apparently none of us would seriously consider going into Casey's and, and, and robbing it, right? Or going into a grocery store and trying to convince the high school kid, and you think, oh, this kid doesn't know anything about math, so trying to convince the high school kid working at the grocery store to give us more change back than he should. I don't remember where I heard this. I just heard a story this week about a kid that didn't know. I don't remember where I heard it. Might have, well, I don't remember. Anyway, a kid that didn't know how to give change back, so he just rounded up to whole dollars and eventually got fired because uh, his drawer wasn't right. You know, <laughs> We don't convince kids to do that, right? But when it comes to trying to take when it comes to our taxes, sometimes we have a different attitude. We think, you know what, maybe I don't need to pay all that. Maybe I can see if I can get away with this. When the government is trying to take away our hard-earned money, to some people that's a different story. To some, it's almost a mission of how do we get out of paying our taxes. Now, I'm not saying that we don't take all the deductions that we can. I'm not saying we don't follow all the rules. If you don't have to pay the tax, don't pay the tax. But I'm saying that we don't try to find those loopholes to pay less than what we're supposed to pay. For most of us, we realize that it's something that we are required to do. And we pay them. Why do we pay them? Is it really because we know it's the right thing to do or because we know that we don't have a choice? When it comes to our money, we tend to get very possessive of it, don't we? What time is it? But paying our taxes is a responsibility that we have, and as we subject ourselves to government for conscience sake. What's another responsibility that we have with our money? And of course, I'm emphasizing the our part of the money because we understand that it's not really our money, right? It's what God has blessed us with. It's what God has allowed us to have. It's what he has given us the skills and the abilities to use to earn it and has graciously provided for us in every way. So it only makes sense that we use it along with everything else in our worship and service to him. Remember, we're giving ourselves as a sacrifice to him. That includes everything that's associated with us, right? It's what we're talking about in this entire section, starting in verse 1 of chapter 12. But along with not only taxes, and this is where I'm going with this, along with not only taxes, when we think of our money and we think of what we should or should not be paying, sometimes our what's our responsibility with giving to our local church with our money at times? That's another responsibility that we have with our money. There's another thing that we should be doing because it's right before God. We'll talk a little bit about this when we get to chapter 15, so I am jumping the gun a little bit. But what's the difference between paying taxes and giving? With taxes, we have our conscience. We know it's the right thing to do. We have the same thing with giving. But with taxes, what else do we have? We have the fear of wrath that comes from breaking that law. We know that if we don't pay up, there are consequences. But what about our giving? That's just as clearly an obligation that we have as believers. But it doesn't come with a fear of enforcement of law. There's not that fear. We don't have a church IRS. We don't have church police that will come out and talk to you when, you know, your, your check doesn't arrive this week. 
But we do it because of conscience. Because as spirit-filled children of God, we know that it's the right thing to do. We know that we need to support our church body. It's part of the love and the service that we talked about when we were back in chapter 12. It makes me wonder, do you think the same percentage of Christians that pay their taxes also give to their local church? I would hope that they would, but I don't know. So we are to pay our taxes. We may not agree with all that our taxes are used for, but once again, Paul doesn't make an an exception for this. Do you think that Paul was in agreement with everything that Nero would have used taxes for? No. Nero would throw large ceremonies for homosexual weddings. He needed to pay for the upkeep of the Colosseum where Christians were fed to the lions. There were many things that Rome did that were not palatable to the Jews even in Jesus' day. They had the same question about paying taxes. If you remember in Matthew chapter 22, they come up to him and say, should we pay taxes to the Romans? And he says, give me a coin whose face is on the coin. They said to him, Caesar's. This is in Matthew 22, 21, where he says, then he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. He had no issue with them paying taxes and gave no qualifications as to when they should be paid. Taxes paid Pilate's salary. Taxes paid the salaries for all of the Roman soldiers that took him up to Calvary. Taxes bought the cross and the nails that he was hung from to die. So as a part of us submitting to government, we are to pay our taxes. That's the rule. Why? Because it says rulers are servants of God devoting themselves to this very thing. Taxes are how government is sustained, how they are able to function, and they spend the majority of their time functioning as servants of God. Now, most of those in government probably would not see themselves as servants of God. Again, you point back to the old Cyrus didn't see himself as a servant of God. Nebuchadnezzar initially did not see himself as a servant of God. But they are the servant of God. They may not acknowledge God as the one to whom they are in service to, but they are his instrument that he is using to accomplish order on earth. And they were established by him for that purpose. Because of that reason, we pay what is owed. It doesn't matter that they waste it. They do waste it. I'm not saying they don't waste it. But that's not the point. Again, we have that unique situation where we at least get some say in it, right? A lot of people don't even get that, but the idea is still the same. Again, we don't, we don't pay more than we, can, than we should. We take the deductions that we can. We vote to reduce taxes. Please vote to reduce taxes. I'm just, just throwing that out there. I try not to get political, but if that's on your heart, But whatever our laws are concerning taxes, that is what we are obligated to pay. Now in verse 7, Paul sums this up. Where are we at? Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. In a nutshell, Christians ought to be good citizens in all areas. We do what is right when it comes to our obligations. What is due here, he's saying, is what is owed. And as Paul has made clear, we have an obligation to those whom God has put in authority. If we owe tax, we pay them. He mentions tax and custom here, and most likely he's referring to different types of Roman taxes. There were property taxes, which is probably what he means by tax, and there were toll and sales taxes, which is what custom would be. Either way, we pay them. Shouldn't be begrudgingly, shouldn't be with complaint. It should be because it's right and it's the command of God. He mentions fear, or this is fear or respect, those whom we are to fear. And this all goes back again to that authority. We have that proper attitude toward our leaders because we recognize they have that authority and we recognize that they are the holders the keepers of vengeance in certain cases, right? If you break the laws, we fear that. And we honor them because honor is due to our leaders. Now, honoring them is what often trips us up. Doing what is right is one thing, but this goes back to what we've seen before, right? There's a matter of the heart in all of this. 
the heart goes into this. This should be a purposeful, thought-out practice of us in all of these things. Back in chapter 12 again, I'm going to remind us of this again. Verses 1 and 2, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Spiritual service of worship. That was, that, that's our thought out service. Engaging our minds in that, in our service. Doing it with purpose and intent. And what is happening to our minds as we become sanctified? They're being transformed, right? Proving the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. We are not to serve God in a way that we do one thing, but we hate it the whole time. And we grumble under our breath and we complain and plot and figure out how we're going to get out of this and how we're going to make things right. That's the way the world thinks and functions. We are no longer like the world. I know what the political climate is. I know the things that are said on both sides of the aisles. I probably read from the same sources that most of you read from. There are a lot of people who are angry with government, angry on both sides, angry with the current guy, angry with the last guy. But the question for us as Christians, should that anger be what characterizes us? Should we be involved with the vitriol that spews out on those that we don't agree with? What did Paul go on to say in chapter two, or chapter 12, sorry? In verse three, he said, we are not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. Verse 14, bless those who persecute us, bless and do not curse. Verse 17, never pay back evil for evil to anyone, respect what is right in the sight of all men. Verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. These are the attitudes that are to shape us, that are to define and characterize us as the children of a holy God. We are to be set apart as he is set apart. So then we flip the page into the next chapter, and when it comes to those in authority over us, where do we come off thinking that it's okay to mock them? to ridicule them, to call them names, to not give them honor. That's not what we ought to be about. What others see as characterizing us. We'll turn to one passage on this. I've been very easy on you with turning to passages. We haven't gone anywhere yet, but turn over with, to 1 Timothy chapter 2 with me. And while you're turning to 1 Timothy chapter 2, let me, let me read what Paul tells Titus. In the first two verses of Titus chapter 3, he tells Titus to relay instructions to his flock. He says in Titus 3 verse 1, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Malign no one, a word that means to blaspheme, speak evil of, but we are to show them every consideration, he says. He's talking about authorities here. How should we respond to those in authority? It's not our business to speak evil of them. 1 Peter chapter 2, I won't read it, it's a bit long, but verses 13 through 17, Peter says the same things. Honor the king, honor the governor, honor those in authority. But I sent you to 1 Timothy 2. So see what Paul says here in 1 Timothy 2 verse 1. He says, first of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men. Okay, that sounds good. We're to keep everyone in prayer, right? Shouldn't be anyone that we shouldn't pray for. But then verse two, for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Now we get to the heart of it, praying for those in authority. How often are we doing that? How often do we have those in our government, in our prayers, praying for a tranquil and quiet life? But you see the reason here. He says, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. So we, 
pray that we might live, be able to live a life that is tranquil and quiet. Not for riots, not for insurrections, but peace and quiet. Now, why do we care about that? Is he saying that we pray these things so that, oh, we just have it easy, so that we can just blend into the background and we don't have any trouble, we don't cause any waves, we don't have any trouble? That's not what he's getting at here. He goes on in verse 3, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Where does he go? He gets to the heart of the matter, which is what? The gospel. The gospel. Verse 5, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. This, this is the message that matters. The gospel. This is the message that we want to be able to speak clearly and truthfully and peacefully as much as we possibly can. People aren't going to like the gospel. We're going to offend them with the gospel. We know that. But this is the only message that matters. Notice Paul doesn't say, I was appointed to win every political argument on Facebook or every argument about gay marriage or transgenderism or every argument about masks or social distancing or vaccines. It was the message of the gospel for which he was appointed a preacher and an apostle. Now, we weren't appointed apostles, but we're sent with the same message. We're not here to stem the tide of the downfall of Western civilization. That is not our purpose. We're here to pave the way for the communication of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we're here for. He says in verse 8, Therefore I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands, without wrath and dissension. Without wrath and dissension. Some Christians are really good at arguing with their friends, co-workers, relatives, about social things, about political things. They can yell down with the best of them. But how do those arguments get the gospel across? How does our funny t-shirt that expresses our political views open doors for the presentation of the gospel? I have a mug at home. It's a tumbler. I love it. It's my favorite tumbler because it keeps things cold or keeps things hot for like hours. And it has a funny political message on it. I don't take that out of the house because I don't want to take it someplace where an unbeliever will see it or someone with another opposing view will see it and my sense of humor might be offended by that. I leave that at home. I'll take it out if I'm going someplace like to my daughter's house or something like that. Because I don't want that to be the first thing that people know about me. I don't want that to be a distraction to the message of the gospel in my life. So back to Romans 13. We are to be leading, we, we aren't to be causing wrath and dissension over our, our political leanings. We aren't to be maligning them. We are to conduct ourselves in a way that provides a peaceful, as peaceful of a path as possible for the sharing of the gospel. And as a part of that, we honor those in authority. Is it because they're such great guys? No. Is it because of their wonderful character? No. It's because they are servants of God. The pattern for us as believers ought to be where we are doing what we should. We are not disobedient. We don't shirk our responsibilities. We don't cheat our government. We maintain a witness, a testimony before men where they see that we do the right thing. What is the motivation for everything that we do? To glorify God, to bring honor and glory to Him. If I tell someone I'm a Christian and I disobey the law, what does that tell them about a Christian? If I take money from the government that I'm not supposed to have, what does that tell them about my witness? How does that affect our witness before others? We always need to be aware of that. It's kind of like when you're driving down the road and you pull up behind someone at a stoplight and they have a honk if you love Jesus sticker. And you honk. And they give you a rude gesture because you're honking at them, right? What kind of witness is that? One of the things that we are to do is subject ourselves to the government, not because of who they are, not because they're worthy of honor 
And we don't pay taxes because they will use it wisely. We do it because we seek to honor God and we are to recognize the authority that he has established. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you. We thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to be in your word. We thank you, Lord, for the instructions that you give us uh, in the book of Romans. We thank you, Lord, for the Apostle Paul and for what you inspired him to write uh, to us, Lord. And we just pray that you would just give us understanding into this, Lord. Help us to use these things in our lives to bring glory and honor to you each and every day. Lord, we just pray as we go into the next hour uh, that you would give um, Josh the wisdom that he needs, Lord, as he brings us the word. Pray that we would give, that, that we would have understanding into your word once again. And Lord, we just pray that that would be a time that would honor you. And Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.